1: while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.
2: From KQED.
3: From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In a case with potentially monumental legal and political implications, the U.S. Supreme Court will soon decide if former President Donald Trump is ineligible to appear on the 2024 ballot. The Colorado Supreme Court a few weeks ago issued an opinion removing Trump from the state's primary ballot for his incitement of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Shortly after, Maine's Secretary of State followed suit. We'll talk about the issues before the court, and we'll hear from you. Do you think the former president engaged in insurrection and should be kept off the ballot? Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. For the first time, a state court has disqualified a former president from appearing on the ballot for engaging in insurrection. And now the U.S. Supreme Court, with three members appointed by that former president, must decide if that state was right. The nation's highest court has agreed to hear former President Trump's appeal of Colorado's ruling, removing him from the primary ballot. The consequential decision that came down shortly before Christmas will be heard by the Supreme Court on February 8th, just days before Colorado is set to mail ballots to voters. Joining me first is Ian Millhiser, senior correspondent covering the Supreme Court at Vox. Ian, so glad to have you with us. It's good to be here, thank you so much. So before we get into the legal issues before the court, you've covered the Supreme Court for a long time. Do you want to say a few words about the significance of this case before them?
4: I mean, it's obviously a massively important case. We have a provision of the Constitution that is intended to prevent people from coming into power who are hostile to the Constitution itself. And I think the important thing to understand about this provision is it exists exactly to prevent someone like Donald Trump from coming to power. What makes Donald Trump a threat to the Constitution isn't just that he tried to overthrow a previous election, it's that he remains popular with much of the country. And we don't care if someone unpopular wants to be wants to become powerful and overthrow the constitution because unpopular people don't get elected to office. But this also creates a serious political problem because on the one hand, we have this provision in the constitution that's supposed to disable certain people from gaining power. On the other hand, we only need it when that person already has a tremendous amount of popular support and potentially win a a public office.
3: Yeah, so the political consequences are potentially explosive. God, how do we get to this point with this country in this position? Give us a little history first, if you could, of how this case came to be in Colorado. Who initiated it, for example?
4: Gotcha. I mean, I, I feel like if, if I was going to start with the history here, I don't even know where to begin. Like, you know, do I start with the Civil War? Um, but so I, I guess I will start with the Civil War, actually. So after the Civil War, there was a sense that we didn't want the people who had just, you know, fought a war again and to, to, to abolish the union, um, to come to power and undermine the system that was in place. So this provision, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, was enacted to say that um, if you previously held high office and you engage in an insurrection or rebellion against the United States, then you are ineligible from holding high office again. And so flash forward now uh, more than 150 years, and Donald Trump... tried to overthrow the 2020 election. He encouraged the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And so some individual voters in Colorado, pursuant to a state law, which allows them to file a lawsuit claiming that a candidate on the ballot should be removed because they're not eligible to run for office, said, well, Donald Trump's not eligible to run for office. He committed an insurrection. And the Colorado Supreme Court agreed and so now that issue has been appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States.
3: Yeah, and this group of voters that that said that that he is ineligible because he committed insurrection. It's a it's a mix of registered Republican voters and unaffiliated voters, right? Uh,
4: that's correct. Although I don't know that I would necessarily read too much into the identity of the plaintiffs in this case. My understanding is that the Colorado law is pretty expansive in terms of who I think any voter in Colorado is able to file a lawsuit. So, you know, all you had to do is find one person in Colorado who was a voter and who objected to Donald Trump. And, you know, this case became inevitable.
3: So, as you say, the Colorado Supreme Court decided that Yes, in fact, he'd committed insurrection. And yes, in fact, that section of the 14th Amendment did apply to Donald Trump. And they were not alone at the trial court level. The conclusion that Donald Trump engaged insurrection was also reached. So where did they differ? Yeah.
4: So they differed on a really weird point that I, I mean, I'm surprised that the trial judge or frankly, any judge signed on to the argument that the trial judge signed on to here. So what the trial judge said is the particular provision of the constitution, section three of the 14th amendment, again, we're talking about the phrase that it used to describe individuals who can be disqualified from holding office is officers of the United States. Someone who previously served as an officer of the United States and then commits insurrection is ineligible to hold another office under the United States. And the trial judge concluded that the president is not an officer of the United States. I, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to break that argument down for your listeners if you want, but I promise you it is as ridiculous as it sounds to say that the highest ranking official of the United, in the United States government is not an officer of the United States.
3: And so the Supreme Court says, yes, we agree with you that the former president engaged in insurrection we disagree with you that he is not an officer of the united states we believe he is an officer of the united states and therefore we believe that he should be excluded from the primary ballot but that argument that he is not an officer of the united states that the president because the president wasn't specifically named but it was said that an officer of the u.s could not uh, right hold office again if they engage in insurrection. That is one of the arguments that Trump's lawyers are presenting to the Supreme Court, right? The U.S. Supreme Court.
4: That's right. I mean, Trump's lawyers presented many arguments. I mean, there's at least like six or seven different legal arguments that Trump or the Colorado Republican Party is making in favor of keeping him on the ballot. It, it's hard to keep track of all of them. And and frankly, One thing that's a little surprising about this case is that normally when the Supreme Court announces it's going to hear the case, it also releases what is called a question presented, which is just a description of what is the specific legal question that the court intends to answer. And the question presented in this case, it's very broad. It's basically just, is Donald Trump disqualified? And Man, I pity the justices and their clerks because they're going to get a brief from Trump's lawyers that lays out like six or seven different legal arguments, only one of which I think is actually potentially any good. And, you know, a lot of them are like this officer of the United States argument where you just, you know, no one, no one unburdened by a law degree is the way that one lawyer put it would would take that sort of argument seriously.
3: We're talking with Ian Millhiser, senior correspondent at Vox. His books include Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted, and The Agenda, How a Republican Supreme Court is Reshaping America. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What questions do you have about the case now before the Supreme Court? It's called Trump v. Anderson. Do you have thoughts about whether or not the former president should be kept off the ballot in Colorado? And if you do, tell us why. Or why not? And of course now Maine has also, the Secretary of State of Maine has said the same thing. And I would also be curious to know if you're comfortable with the court playing this significant a role in a presidential election. You can email your comments and questions to forum at KQED.org. You can find us on our social channels at KQED Forum, or you can call us at 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. So yes, the Trump's lawyers are presenting, as you say, several different arguments. But can you just briefly, because we will dig into them more after the break, but just briefly summarize a few of the key things that they're asking the Supreme Court to consider in this one, under this one broad question of whether or not the Colorado Supreme Court made a mistake in ordering President Trump excluded from the primary ballot?
4: Right. So broadly speaking, there are two different kinds of arguments for, you know, for over for reversing the colorado supreme court letting trump stay on the ballot there are some arguments that just say like definitively trump is allowed to be there end of story let's stop talking about this at all and like those are arguments raising from this silly argument that he's not an officer of the united states um to like factual claims that he did not commit insurrection. And so the Supreme Court could conceivably say like, hey, he's allowed to stay on altogether. I don't don't think that too many of those arguments are very good. The strongest argument that I think Trump can raise is that Colorado, like I said, does have a process by which any individual voter can challenge a particular candidate's right to appear on the ballot. But ordinarily, this process is used for very simple matters, like what, one of the dissenting justices in the Colorado Supreme Court pointed out that it's historically been used for things like whether a someone running for school board lives in the right county to vote for that school board, you know, very minor issues. And this is not a minor issue, nor is it a particularly easy issue. And it's an issue that is very fact-specific. You know, we, you know, a court can't just accept like, okay, well, we all watched CNN on January 6th, so we know what happened. A court has to actually conduct a fact-finding proceeding. There has to be witnesses. There has to be discovery. There has to be all of the normal fact-gathering processes that courts use. And then after it is determined what has happened, then it can answer the question, okay, did this thing that happened amount to an insurrection? And Colorado uses a very truncated process in order to make that determine for ballot um, ineligibility. There isn't the full – Trump didn't have the full right to call witnesses. There wasn't um, full access to discovery, which is the process by which one party in a lawsuit gains information about what's going on. And so I think the simplest way that the Supreme Court could dispose of this case is just say this process wasn't enough. This process did not give Trump the due process he's entitled to under the Constitution. But if a future process, say his criminal trial in D.C. for trying to steal the election, were to find the same facts and determine that Trump engaged in an insurrection, then the Supreme mm. Court could re- reopen this issue and he could be disqualified.
3: We're coming up on a break, but but Trump has a right to all of that extensive due process, even if the penalty would be that he just can't run. I mean, do you he, know, what oh, I mean, like, I wonder just how harmful that really is. Right.
4: Right. So everyone has a right to due process. I mean, the question of how much process they're entitled to can depend on the case. But I just want to point out, like, this is a foundation of Western liberal democracy. Like Adolf Eichmann got a trial. So, like, you know, Trump is a bad guy. And I mean, I watched the news on January 6th, so I know he's guilty. But courts have to have a process to determine that.
3: We're talking about the Colorado Supreme Court's decision that excludes former President Trump the t- from the 2024 primary ballot and what are the legal questions surrounding that case and the political implications of it. We're talking with Ian Milheiser and we'll have more with him and with you, our listeners, after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear former President Trump's appeal of Colorado's state Supreme Court ruling that removed him from the primary ballot. And we're talking with Ian Millheiser, senior correspondent at Vox, about that. And with you, our listeners, tell us what questions you have about the case now before the Supreme Court, whether you have an opinion about whether the former president should be kept off the ballot whether you're comfortable with the court playing the significant role in presidential elections as we've had them weigh in in the past, and not everyone's loved that, because some feel that a better outcome for our for our democracy is to allow voters to decide, while others feel. That one should follow the law and the Colorado ruling standing and Trump being excluded from the ballot is better for our democracy. We want to hear your thoughts. Email forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. Call us at 866-733-6786. And some of you are already weighing in. This listener writes on Instagram, let people decide the election. Another listener, Elena, writes, no, he should not be on the ballot. He's unfit to be president. He should be held accountable for what he did while in office. He's a crook and a criminal. I want to bring in Andrea Sosaria Katz into the conversation now, associate professor of law at Washington University in St. Louis. Professor Katz, thanks so much for being with us.
5: Hi, Mina. Thanks for having me.
3: So I, I do want to ask you sort of a similar question that I asked Ian before we get to some of the legal questions that the court is going to weigh just any initial thoughts or reactions you had when this decision came down essentially this decision this situation i guess that we find ourselves in with this case in this country
5: um well um so that's a can of worms i would say that probably the least surprising part of this whole uh episode is that the supreme court agreed to hear it Um, Probably Hmm. once the Colorado Supreme Court issued what's now being considered a bombshell ruling just before Christmas, um, it was kind of a fait accompli that the Supreme Court would agree to hear it. Uh, The the idea that the court would sort of contemplate uh, a presidential election being held in this kind of patchwork way with Colorado excluding and Maine subsequently excluding um, former President Trump from the ballot, but no one else. Um, I mean, I think that that would cast a pal over the election that I think the court was was not willing to tolerate. So I I figured that they were going to grant certiorari in this case. Um, It was just kind of a question of when.
3: Yeah. So I want to ask you about some of the arguments being presented to the court by Donald Trump's lawyers. One is that the president is not covered by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which essentially says that, you know, if you held office, swore an oath to the Constitution, but then later engaged in insurrection, that you're ineligible for an office again, right, that that he is not covered, that the president is not covered. How should we think about that question?
5: Um, it's it's interesting because arguments sort of um, go become go from off the wall to on the wall. I'm I'm uh, quoting uh, Jack Balkin here. Um, I think before this all happened, the idea that the president was not an officer of the United States would have been considered ludicrous. Um, the the argument, as I understand it, is based on two kind of main ideas. Number one. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment doesn't actually list the president in its list of offices from which you can be excluded. Um, And the other point is that the president swears uh, a different oath um, to protect and defend the Constitution, whereas the lawyers here are making the point that this is a specific oth- oath that other office holders are swearing to to support the Constitution. Uh, my view personally is that this argument is cherry picking. Um, as the Colorado Supreme Court, they, they made it very clear to to reject this argument, which is actually what the lower Uh, court in colorado had initially found that section three did not apply the colorado supreme court overturned the lower court on this specific point and one of the strong arguments they made was that the constitution refers to the presidency as an officer as an office no less than 25 times Mm. um and i think another point which is less textual less legalistic is that it's 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 kind of ludicrous to think that the architects of the 14th Amendment intended to exclude, you know, the county uh, dog catcher from office if he had been an insurrectionist, but not the highest uh, office of the United States. So I think both text and purpose um, kind of counsel us to reject this argument.
3: Well, this is Nara on Instagram writes, Courts decide crimes. Voters decide elections. And so, I want to ask you that question of whether Trump engaged in insurrection, as contemplated by by Section Three. Does it require uh, that he be charged or convicted of the crime of insurrection first before? So, a, a, yeah, a state court can make that determination on an election issue.
5: Yeah, right. So. What I think I'd emphasize is that the the history of this of of the Fourteenth Amendment as um Mark Graber, who's just written a book, a great book, uh, uh Punished treason is the name of their book. He writes that the history of the Fourteenth Amendment speaks to us from uh you know, way back in eighteen sixty eight. It speaks to us with a whisper. So I think all of us should show some humility before we say something like this is the clear intent of the Fourteenth Amendment. Um that said, uh, I think there's been good historical work, both by Professor Graber and Professor Jared uh, Magliocca, who's testified in a couple of these cases, including Colorado and Maine, um, that this is not intended to be a criminal punishment. This is intended to be an extra qualification on a candidate who, who is running for office, just as if, you know, just like you can't run for president if you're 25 uh, or if you were born in another country. In the same way, um, if you... previously held oath and then engaged in an insurrection, you are now disqualified, again, just as you would be if you were, you know, 25 years old, Um, which is to say this is a civil um, matter. This is a procedural matter. This is not a criminal matter, right? Right.
3: right. So to be clear, you're saying that um, you cannot be an ex-insurrectionist and run for office, and you can be considered an insurrectionist even if you were not convicted of The crime of insurrection first, a crime first. That's what you're saying. Right,
5: exactly. Criminal liability, you know, this phrase that we know so well, beyond a reasonable doubt, it's a high standard to prove for a reason, right? You're talking about somebody's liberty. Um, I think it's pretty clear that the framers of the 14th Amendment understood that disqualification from running for office, while severe, was not the same level of severity um, so again, I think there's good reason to think of this as a lower standard of proof than than something that requires a, a criminal conviction.
3: Ian, I'm curious if there are any examples in previous case law of insurrectionists being barred from office in U.S. history?
0: There's, so I
5: mean, a, there's a handful of cases, okay. I want to say, dating back to um, like 1869 or thereabouts. These are state Supreme Court's that um, um, held hearings and concluded that certain individuals had been part of the Confederacy and therefore were excluded from office. There's also, I believe, um, from around the same period, uh, the Senate voted not to seat an elected senator who had been uh, a former governor in the Confederacy. So just just a handful of these proceedings. Um, More recently, um, more interestingly probably, in, um, in late 2022, um a new mexico court uh found that one of the participants in the january 6th uh attacks actually was excluded from state office um for having engaged in insurrection so the the precedent is pretty scant um but there's a handful that does exist and Ian, cases that get at
3: defining what terms like insurrection actually mean or what engaging in insurrection actually mean yeah there are a lot I mean, of
4: those so, the problem here is that, I mean, it, this isn't a problem. The United States has been very fortunate in that we don't have a lengthy history since the Civil War of high-ranking public officials committing insurrection. And so, you know as 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 Andrea noted, there just there is not a lot of case law saying what this means. And so one of the fundamental questions that the court needs to answer is, what is an insurrection? Um, you know, actually want a, a threshold question that they need to answer is who gets to decide what is an insurrection? You know one, one of Trump's arguments is that, that only Congress gets can, can say what is or is not an, an insurrection. Um, yeah. And there's that yeah. And so the the problem that we're dealing with here is that for the most part, section you know section three of the Fourteenth Amendment has arguably one, been one of the most successful provisions of the Constitution, because we just haven't had that many insurrections in the United (laughs) States up until now.
3: I'm curious about this, Andrea. Why does the U.S. Supreme Court in this case get to decide whether or not he engaged in insurrection if the trial court determined that he did, the Colorado State Supreme Court determined that he did, only because I think of those as sort of findings of of fact, right, a determination based on factual evidence, which doesn't tend to get to be heard at the Supreme Court level, no?
5: I think that's a great question. Um, uh, I think there's sort of two sort of buckets of questions of thorny, really, really trying questions that we're facing here right now. The sort of substantive question, insurrection or not, engaging in an insurrection or not, the presidency, an officer or not, and then what you're alluding to, this other bucket of questions, who gets to make these determinations? Um, I think one of the things I think that was sort of noteworthy coming out of the Colorado cases, the lower court opinion, and then the, the Colorado state Supreme Court opinion, was that both were enormously lengthy opinions, I think 100 pages each. Yeah. Setting out an extensive narrative of the events leading up to January 6th. And, and, you know, in the lower court in Colorado, they allowed witnesses for President Trump to testify to sort of bring forth his side of the story. Um, But then uh, both the lower court judge and the Colorado State Supreme Court judge concluded that none of Trump's witnesses really did much to challenge the version of events um, that, you know, that that. that were laid down, for instance, in the House January 6th committee report. So this is to say, all of the sort of institutions that have talked about this narrative seem pretty clear that there's a single version of the facts. Um, so is the Supreme Court going to kind of reopen that? My, my strong suspicion is that they won't, that the kind of substance of what happened um, is, is, is gonna be kind of left untouched. Then there's the further question, you have the narrative Do you categorize that as an insurrection or not? That's a legal question. It's not a factual question. Mm. Um, Even so, I still think it's unlikely that the Supreme Court uh, goes about that route. I think, as I was saying before, who gets to decide is um, probably where I think they're going to hang their hat, is my guess.
3: Well, let me go to some callers. And Eric in Highland is on the line. Eric,
2: you're on. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Well, I think the idea of letting the voters decide is absurd. First of all, it shouldn't be a majority rules issue.
4: Um, as Donald Trump said the other day in the Supreme Court, or his people said in the appeals court, that uh, he could shoot somebody and still be uh, not convicted. And that's what he also said about uh, he could shoot somebody in Times Square and not going to be convicted. So it really isn't a legal matter. It's more of a popularity matter, which I think is not a good idea. I think uh, letting the voters decide is not not a good thing. I think it should be decided in the courts.
3: Hmm. Well, Laura writes, I see the value of letting the people decide on this Trump case, but if you do this, then this will be the law of the land. And do we suffer the short term of a MAGA uprising to set the long term law? Uh, Andrea, Trump's lawyers do raise this political question, right? They say that the Supreme Court essentially needs to reverse the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to allow voters to choose the candidate they want. I don't think they're trying to necessarily say this is a legal argument, but the concept is presented because I guess it's powerful. Like, what do you
5: think? Um, I think you're quite right to call this a political question. I mean, I think we would have to be sort of— willfully ignorant to think that the Supreme Court is not thinking about all of these things. Um, But, I mean, the the, the sort of cut-and-dry legal version of of this claim is, like, if the shoe fits, right? Um, Nobody paid any attention to Section 3 except, again, Gerald Maglioga before 2020, right? And then suddenly there's there's a sort of dismaying realization that there's this provision of the Constitution that seems to fit hand-in-glove with what just happened, right? Um, the fact that it's old, hadn't been paid attention to, does that mean that we should hesitate before applying it to these circumstances? Again, I think there's a kind of legalistic reading, and I think the legal case um, is pretty cut and dry, that this meets the te- the definition of an insurrection. And then the separate political question is whether it is wise to do it this way. But personally, I don't think it's right to say that to apply the Constitution Uh, to bar him from running for office is undemocratic, right? Mm. Um, It it Mm -hmm. takes a little bit of a a kind of leap of the imagination, but I mean, the Constitution is what, you know, provides the framework for our democracy. Enforcing the Constitution is democratic for that specific reason. Hmm. Uh,
3: Ian, wondering if you just want to weigh in here on your thoughts on the political argument that the court as a practical matter, you know, should let voters be able to vote for a very popular candidate, for example, right? Because I can hear the superficial appeal that this might have to people.
4: (laughs) Right. I mean, I think the important thing to understand about democracy is that democracy isn't a game that we play one time, and then we're done with it. Democracy is a game that's supposed to go on forever, and part of that means that every few years or so, we have an election and officials rotate in and out of office based on how they perform in an election. So Donald Trump, I mean, well, the electoral college selected Donald Trump as the president in 2016 and under, the, uh, under our constitution, that is the legitimate way for him to become president. But then in 2020, the voters were quite clear that they didn't want Donald Trump to be president anymore. And if your theory of democracy is that we need to let this guy run again because, you know, the voters might want him to be in office and become essentially an elected monarch, well – That's not how democracies work. That's not how our constitution works. You know, the the way that any democracy has to function is that you have periodic elections. Everyone has to accept the proposition that if you are in power and you lose the election, then you are going to be out of power. And essentially the way that, you know, proponents of removing Trump Trump from the ballot, what they're arguing here is they're just saying, look, the only way to maintain our democracy at all is if you say – If you attack the concept of democracy itself, if you refuse to accept the proposition that if you become president four years later, there's going to be an election that you can lose, then, you you know, you are no longer allowed to play this game anymore. Mm.
3: Well, Dan writes, I believe Governor Newsom stated that the voters should decide on a candidate and not the courts. However, too many voters, actually he did, Newsom did say that. However, too many voters appear to be ignorant of the importance and danger to our constitutional government posed by Donald Trump. Could this be an opportunity to educate the voters and how could this be done? Another listener writes, it's simple. If the 14th Amendment is real, Trump can be removed from the ballot. End of story. Listener Jack writes, there is a lot of coverage of this issue, but I seldom hear mention of the fact that one need not commit insurrection, but simply provide aid and comfort to someone who does commit that act. Please explain this critical detail andrea can i go
5: to you on that um yeah i mean um what i'd say to that yeah Mm -hmm. yeah 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 what what i'd say to that is this um the 19th century uh 19th century laws on insurrection were vastly more um set a vastly lower bar so Famously, um Blackstone, uh the great legal thinker of England on whose on, you know, along whose writing a lot of the American common law was patterned. He had a he had a quote that went like this: There's no such thing, I'm paraphrasing, excuse me, there's no such thing as an abetter in an insurrection. Uh if you if you if you aid an insurrection, you are an insurrectionist. Uh this is to say 19th century law um would scooped up sort of very minor participation. Now, there's good reasons to sort of depart from that, right? Today we give a lot more protection to free speech, um, but there's good reason to think that the test, uh, not just for giving aid and comfort, but for engaging is pretty easy to meet here. So one case uh, from 1869 defined this as voluntary, voluntarily aiding an insurrection by personal service or by contributions of anything that is useful or necessary. What I find interesting, uh, this has been mentioned a lot, the current Supreme Court tends to favor an originalist methodology,
3: Mm. Um,
5: and I think if you apply the test that was, um, um, you know, uh, in practice in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified, it's this lower bar, voluntarily aiding the insurrection uh, or contributing yep. to it anything that is useful or necessary.
2: More after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
3: This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about the Colorado Supreme Court's decision that excludes former President Trump from the primary ballot and the Supreme Court's decision on Friday to hear the case and that arguments are on February 8th. We're talking about the legal and the political questions the case raises with Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox, who covers the Supreme Court, and Andrea Sosaria Katz, associate professor of law at Washington University in St. Louis. And we're talking with you, our listeners, about it. You can join us at by email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org and by posting on our social channels as well and there are so many things to get to andrea but i do want to get to just one last point in this case which is this idea um, that the that the 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 self-executing question so the lawyers make this point that section three of the 14th amendment is not self-executing ian touched on this slightly but what does that mean exactly (laughs)
5: Right. Um, right. Uh I, I think this is the toughest question in the whole batch, uh, frankly. Um who, who gets to decide uh if an individual has uh engaged in insurrection and is therefore uh disqualified, right? Um the um the initial petitioners in the Colorado case have been trying to liken uh this disqualification to some of the easier cases that we talked about before, uh, age requirements, citizenship requirements, residency requirements, right? It's really easy to contemplate a secretary of state from a particular state using their authority to disqualify somebody from the ballot who doesn't meet these very obvious criteria, right? But how do the words insurrection get sort of called into, into being? So um, the the sort of two main sides are basically the states get to take action uh, to apply this provision on their own, which is essentially what Colorado did. Versus, and this is what uh, you know, former President Trump's attorneys are arguing, Congress has to pass enabling legislation. Um, this is what's meant by uh, the Fourteenth Amendment isn't self-executing. Um, I think the problem with this argument is that there's other parts of our Constitution that are obviously self-executing. For instance, the abolition of slavery. Nobody contends that legislation is required before slavery is illegal in our country. Right. Uh, so why why this provision? That said, I think the challenge for those who are seeking to exclude uh, President Trump from the battle uh, from the from the ballot. Is um, do we are we are we comfortable contemplating a sort of patchwork landscape of 50 states, 50 state Supreme Courts, uh, 50 state secretaries of state using their own authority sort of, uh, you know, spontaneously to exclude a candidate whom they allege to have committed insurrection? I mean, it's a sort of federalist nightmare. Yes. Um,
3: Though that is essentially what Maine Secretary of State did right, and then, of course, in California, our secretary Secretary of State you know declined to remove President Trump from the ballot, though left open the possibility depending on what the u s. Supreme Court does that they might do that as well. So you're saying that, you know, yeah, do we really need Congress to? you know, execute some kind of law related to or defining law related to insurrection before the states can make that determination, or can the states make that determination on their own. But there's some discomfort, I think I'm hearing in, in your uh, contemplation of secretaries of state being empowered to just make that determination on their own as well. Do you think this is what the US Supreme Court will use, uh, will will likely use in a Ruling that they reach or a decision that they reach, Andrea, and I know that's a huge question, but I'm just curious <laughs> if you think that's a, an appealing off ramp for them to take.
5: Right, right, I, right, um, I, I do, I do. Uh, I think huh. the question of who gets to decide is probably more appealing for the Supreme Court to tackle than again as you suggested before trying to overturn the findings about whether about trump's conduct or whether january 6 rises to the level of an insurrection or whether there's presidential immunity um you know ian mentioned that democracy is a game that's not just played once it's played infinite times hopefully (laughs) stretching into the future i think the procedural point congress has to act before section three can be invoked enforced uh is a lot less damaging um, and it's a lot more technical legal. So so my sense is that the Supreme Court would have more of an appetite to engage that way. For the purposes of 2024, if they rule this way, that Congress needs to legislate before anything happens, I think it's as good as done that uh, Trump will appear on the ballot. Um, but I think in terms of not setting down a damaging precedent for elections in the future, that's more likely what they'll do. If, if
4: I could just jump, jump yeah, in here real Ian, quick. Yeah, I find this self-executing issue baffling, and, and here's why. It is true that a lot of constitutional provisions are understood that you can't bring a lawsuit under them unless some legislature has passed a lawsuit saying individuals can file lawsuits to enforce this particular constitutional provision. But... Traditionally, we have understood that either Congress or a state legislature can pass a law saying that a particular provision of the Constitution may be enforced through lawsuits. There's actually a case being argued next week. It's called uh, DeVilliers v. Texas. And the issue in this case is that there is a landowner who claims that he is entitled to compensation under the Fifth Amendment because Texas built a barrier that essentially caused his land to be flooded. It is what's called a takings case. And Everyone agrees in this case that Texas passed a law that provides for enforcement of the takings clause. And the question is, you know, there's some questions as to whether or not that law makes it enforceable enough, whether or not it gives too many protections to the state. But everyone agrees that Texas is allowed to pass a law saying that you can sue in Texas court to enforce the takings clause. Um, You know, if, you know, the, the Constitution says that you can't have segregated schools, it doesn't say that. If a principal refuses to admit black students, that principal gets fired. But a state could pass a law saying we want to enforce this protection against segregated schools. So we are going to pass a law enforcing the 14th Amendment saying that any principal who violates this rule gets fired. States are allowed to pass laws to enforce the Constitution. And so what I worry about with this self-executing issue is that if... if Colorado did pass a law here saying that individuals can sue um in order to enforce um you know in order to enforce any ballot disqualification requirement. We can argue about whether or not that law provides enough due process. But if the Supreme Court says that states aren't allowed to pass laws that seek to enforce the Constitution, that is, I mean, No court, I think, has ever Mm. claimed that. And that Mm -hmm. that is a sea change in terms of what it means for how the Constitution works.
3: We're talking with Ian Millhiser, senior correspondent covering the Supreme Court at Vox and with Professor Andrea Sosaria Katz, associate professor of law at Washington University in St. Louis. And Alan writes, anyone who says – Let the voters decide is missing the point. Trump and his insurrection had the sole goal of not letting the voters decide the 2020 election. If you want the voters to decide, how can you defend someone who did not want to let the voters decide? Leslie writes, these lawsuits might be a feel-good bomb to many, but will only serve to bolster Trump's grievances of being a victim of the deep state. Ian, do you see any scenario? I mean, what are the chances, I guess is a better way of phrasing it, That the Supreme Court will side with the Colorado Supreme Court, will affirm the Colorado Supreme Court's decision. I, I recall seeing a tweet of yours where you say, inside me there are two wolves, a lawyer who reads the Constitution and finds that it bans Trump from office, and a jaded political analyst who knows there's no chance SCOTUS will save us from Trump and we should stop living in fantasy land. But are there, is there a chance? I mean... (laughs) <laughs> that they would say, I, I, yeah, he committed insurrection, or, or maybe Andrea, you want to weigh in on this? He committed insurrection, and he should be disqualified from the ballot.
4: I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say, like, I mean, there's always a chance. I mean, there's a chance that Jesus appears tomorrow, and sure, we're all... but isn't it a little bit better
3: than that? And what I mean by that is, is it a little better than that, right? Like where a John Roberts and who has. Yeah positioned himself as an institutionalist who's who seems to care about the perception of the court, right, might be able to convince another one of his fellow conservatives
4: yeah, I mean, it's it's slightly better than the chance of Jesus or <laughs> aliens or, you know, some other, you know, magical force arriving tomorrow and saving us from Donald Trump. But honestly, I don't think it's that much better for for several reasons. I mean, one is just that this is a six to three Republican majority. Three of them were appointed by Donald Trump. They were all vetted by or six of them were vetted by Republican White Houses, you know, to make sure that they would tend to do things that align with the preferences of the Republican Party. Um, the second reason is, you know, as I said before, there's actually a legitimate reason for them to overrule the, the Colorado Supreme Court. There's due process concerns about the particular very truncated process that that, that that was used. And, you know, and then there's just all the political concerns that, you know, does this court, which has historically low approval ratings right now, does it feel like it has the political stature to carry the burden? of removing this person fr- from the ballot. So, I, I mean, maybe we will all be surprised here, but judges are political appointees, at least federal judges are political appointees who you know, typically act in political ways in these very high profile cases. And I think it is overwhelmingly likely that they will act in a political way in this case.
5: What do you think, Andrea? Um, I'm not a betting woman. I think I agree with Ian that the chances um, of agreeing with that the Supreme Court agrees with Colorado are are less than than 50, certainly. But I, I don't I think I I think I see it as more uh, possible than he does for a couple reasons. Um, I, I, I think, um, yeah, Ian's made his 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 point clearly that he's concerned with how much process uh, Trump received in Colorado. Personally, I didn't think it was such a skimpy process. This was a five-day trial with whatever 91 exhibits, um, including testimony of his own witnesses. And again, we've discussed already this is not a, a criminal trial. This is this is a civil proceeding. Um, so I see the due process issue as a little bit less sticky. Uh, I think the case on the law, as I've mentioned, is actually pretty good that Section 3 applies to just this scenario. Uh, we've talked about you know the off-ramps, but I think that the more salient off-ramps are political as opposed to legal. Again, those main questions being, was this an, an insurrection? Did Trump engage in it? And is the presidency an officer? I think those questions... Um, are as close to cut and dry as you get in a in a in a question of, of constitutional law like this then as to the politics yeah i i think the supreme court is more likely to duck the the enormous flack that they would receive for issuing an opinion like this but i i would also say despite the fact that it's a conservative majority this isn't necessarily a very trump friendly supreme court in a lot of the cases um, for instance, the a lot of the cases that have concerned Trump's own personal interest as opposed to sort of say, a more uh, you know broad presidential power or party ideology uh, kind of fl- uh, lens, uh, Trump has actually done pretty badly before this court. Um, so you know, sort of shadowy political calculations, I could certainly see uh, Roberts and another justice concluding, it's better to put all of this behind us. This is a clear case, and let's turn our hopes to Nikki Haley moving forward.
3: Hmm. Well, let me remind listeners, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I think uh, Isaac thinks certain aspects of this are cut and dry. Isaac writes, I spent 20 years in the Army and the armed forces. Anybody in command is an officer. The president of the United States is referred to as the commander in chief. And by definition, he is an officer. Louise writes, if Jack Smith's case is decided against Trump, can Trump then be removed from the ballot or removed from office if elected? Uh, Andrea, you want to take that? You want to talk about Jack Smith's case and people's understanding of it as well?
5: sure um uh i mean i think a short answer would be yes um that said jack smith's case uh isn't actually charging uh donald trump with the federal crime of insurrection um there's there's four counts in that indictment and they relate to various conspiracies to obstruct a legal proceeding to defraud the nation defraud the voters etc Um, So, a a conviction in that case isn't immediately going to connect the dots for somebody who believes that what you require here is a criminal conviction of insurrection. That said, uh, I've suggested that I think the relevant test knowing this Supreme Court is what did they think of this in the 19th century? And again, there's good reason to think that in the 19th century, um, a sort of assembly of people engaged in obstructing the laws for a sort of stated political aim. That was good enough to meet the test. So, in in my view, uh, that's the correct test, and I think anything that came out of the Jack Smith would would be gravy, frankly.
3: So, Ian, before this, you were talking about whether or not the court, the institution, you know, has has essentially the respect, the regard, you know, and and so on to be able to make a decision of the magnitude where it would in fact say, yes, this former president committed insurrection and uh, that, you know, that he in fact should not be eligible to run uh, for office and and maybe even by extension ever hold that office, right? Uh, So can you just tell me what you mean by that, what you see as the risks for the court or the institution itself with a case like that and a ruling as explosive as that,
4: potentially? Well, I mean, there's no gentle way to put this. But like when we talk about Donald Trump, we are talking about a man who is explicitly running you know i mean he gave a speech where he said i am your vengeance to to your supporters he and his top aides are talking about jailing their political opponents as a journalist i am worried because some of his top aides have talked about you know bringing the law to bear against journalists who who criticize him this is a president whose supporters already committed a very serious act of violence against the United States. That was the the January 6th attack. Um, And, you know, and he has threatened, you know, or encouraged them to do, you know, to commit acts of violence many times in the past. So, you know, when you have a figure like this who has developed this kind of popular support, it's too late to extract yourself from that situation without something off. Happening. I, I mean, I, I think what a lot of people are justifiably afraid of is you have a significant minority of the country that is very loyal to this individual who is simultaneously hostile to the project of constitutional democracy and eager to see and, you know, actively encouraging his supporters to engage in political violence, political violence, which they have already engaged in. And, and so, you know, this isn't saying that the Supreme Court should just throw its hands up and it should, you know, allow Trump to remain on the ballot because if he's elected, that's even worse as an outcome for, um, for our Constitution and, and for democracy. But once you've already gotten to this point where you have this many people who have rallied behind a figure who is calling for, you know, authoritarian violence against the Constitution and the United States – you know, I understand why people feel that you can't solve that problem by having a court decision come down. And if you do have that court decision come down, it would not surprise me in the least if the result is significantly more political violence.
3: Andrea, I, we have less than a minute. I'm sorry to ask you this very big question, but I do wonder if you have determined what would be the best case scenario ruling from the Supreme Court for our democracy.
5: Um. The best case scenario um, for the,
3: for our democracy
5: i mean I, i'm genuinely concerned about the notion that a part of our constitution cannot be enforced against somebody because they're popular uh, i think there's a lot of ways in which democracy uh slides um uh, beyond repair but, but i think that's one of them uh suggesting that that he's beyond the reach of the constitution for this reason um, but if somebody with a crystal ball were to tell me that enforcing the 14th Amendment meant the downfall of American democracy, then protect American democracy. It's a very sort of Lincolnian proposition. We can't enforce a law and lose democracy. So um, that that's where I'd I'd leave that.
3: Andrea, thank you so much for joining us today. And Ian, thanks as well for your thank you and analysis. Thank you, listeners, for your great questions. Thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening.
2: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.